and welcome to episode 37 of Board Game Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to wait for paint to dry. This week, we're talking about art. First, we discuss a few games we've played recently, like The Pyramid's Deadline, Kobayakawa, Russian Railroads, and Bonk. Then we talk about art in board games, both illustration and graphic design, and how they can add to a game in a number of ways. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word art. And now, here are your hosts, Ambi, Cassidy, and me, Crystal. So real quick, before we hop into the episode, this is your reminder that I, Crystal, am participating in Draft Mechanics Fantasy Board Game League this season. Uh, My board games that I've selected for my team are being matched up against other people's board games. And if you go and vote on this week's matchups, you, or every week's matchups, that is, you can win $100 to an online local game store. So go to draftmechanic.net slash fbgl. And you vote on me because you love me and that's what you should do. (laughs) I also wanted to give a shout out to another one of our podcast friends, the Board Games in Bed podcast, which is uh, somewhat new. I don't know if I've mentioned them before, but it is hosted by a couple from the UK, Kelly and Becky, and they every week literally record from like they're lounging in bed on Sunday morning talking about what games they've played that week and then they have a discussion topic as well. They recently had an episode uh, just a few weeks ago about why board gaming as a hobby isn't more mainstream and I found it really interesting and enlightening and so I just wanted to give them a shout out and they probably by the time this episode releases I think they will be just back or getting back from their honeymoon because they just recently got married so congratulations Kelly and Becky. But so they've had a little bit of a hiatus episode release wise, but that might give you a little extra time to catch up on some of their past episodes. But yeah, definitely check out Board Games in Bed. It is awesome. So I bought a bunch of Oink Games at Gen Con because Oink Games was at Gen Con. (laughs) For the first time. I also bought a bunch of Oink (laughs) Games at Gen Con. (laughs) Yes. So now I have some new Oink Games that I'm liking a lot. Two of them are The Pyramid's Deadline and Kobayakawa. The Pyramid's Deadline, actually both of these are by June Sasaki. Uh, the Pyramid's Deadline is two to six players and it lasts around 20 minutes. It was published in 2016. And it's a puzzle game where you're building a pyramid out of like triangle and rectangular shapes, kind of like the tangram shapes. And you're trying to complete your pyramid before the pharaoh dies. And the way you get the pieces to build the pyramid is by drafting dice. And the pharaoh dies when all the red squares run out. So depending on which pieces you choose, because one die is left over at the end of each round, depending on which pieces you choose, you can make the end come quicker or slower. And if you don't finish your pyramid, there's certain rules for what a finished pyramid is, you won't get any points if you don't finish. So it's interesting trying to make sure you can complete your pyramid while still making it as big as possible because you get more points for a bigger, better pyramid. And I enjoy the puzzle aspect, and it has a decent amount of interaction in the drafting and the red square timer thing to make it interesting. And Kubayakawa was published in 2013. It's three to six players. It's also really short, like 15 minutes. And it's also published by Yellow now, although I heard the coins are better in the Oink version. They're nice metal coins. I'm not sure what they are in the Yellow version. So Kubayakawa is like a light poker game. I don't really play poker because I don't like losing money, 
but <laughs> goodbye, Kyle. I mean, does anybody like losing money? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, but it gets a good poker bluffing feeling in a really short time. There's only 15 cards in the deck. It, they're numbered 1 to 15. And each player has a card, and there's a face-up card in the middle. So everyone gets one turn to either draw a card and discard one, or replace the card in the middle with, a co- with the top card from the deck. Then if you want to stay in, you bet a chip, and whoever has the highest number wins. But whoever has the lowest card gets to add their number to the card in the middle first. So I, I like it because it's simple. And in poker, one thing I don't like is deciding how much to bet and like raising multiple hands stresses me out. So I like how Kobayakawa is a set amount and you're either in or out. It's very simple. But you still get like the bluffing feeling because you're wondering what people could have depending on what they did on their turn. Because maybe they replaced the middle card because they have a high card or they discarded a high card. So maybe they have a low card and they're going for the bonus. So I really like both of those oink games. The Pyramid's Deadline and Kobayakawa. Those are two I actually didn't pick up. (laughs) (laughs) So it was nice to hear about them. (laughs) I think Ambie and I switched roles and are recently played (laughs) this week. (laughs) I'm going to be talking about Russian Railroads, where not technically 18xx is still on the heavier end of what I typically play. Russian Railroads had its US release by Z-Man Games in 2013. It does appear to be out of print, but it is available to play online through Board Game Arena and Yukata. It's two to four players in about an hour and a half to two hours. So this is definitely on the heavier end of my medium-heavy Euro-loving business. (laughs) In Russian Railroads, players are competing in a race to build the largest and most advanced railway network. The basic idea is you're using available workers to build track, purchase more powerful locomotives that can navigate your tracks, and hire engineers and build factories to help you move your game along. I had no idea what I was getting into when I started playing this game. I didn't read anything about it. I had no idea. But at the end of it, I had the same exact feeling that I had at the end of Power Grid, which was... I need to play this again because I know all the things that I did wrong and I know what I should have done and I have all these new ideas and I really just need to play it again. Since it's out of print, that's so easy to do because it was not my copy of the game that was being played. About halfway through the game was when I realized that I was making big mistakes and I was trying to build up this huge engine for scoring points, but the game ended well before that point scoring engine would have had time to do anything. <laughs> and that's sort of saying something because it was an hour and a half to two hours. I think it was about an hour and a half, a half for our game. And I needed more time. I was like, I need this game to go on another hour, which is sort of crazy. Anyway, I ended my game with 201 points. My opponents ended well over 300. So I did not do so well. <laughs> Anyways, since I played this game, I have now been playing on Yukata because Yukata allows me to play a solo variant. But if anyone is interested in playing this on Board Game Arena, look me up. It's Noah Jane, N-O-A-J-A-Y-N-E, and I will gladly play a game of Russian Railroads with you. Yeah, there's a huge ramp up in that game. You get so many points in the last turn. <laughs> and you have to get there like yeah. real fast too. I was not prepared. Like I was I the next to the last round I said, Man, I got forty five points this round. That's awesome. And the next player's like, Yeah, I got a hundred and yeah. I'm like, What? <laughs> what even happened? What am I doing with my life? 
I really liked it, though. It was a lot of fun. So we're, we went from kind of light to really heavy, and I'm going to take us back all the way to the other end of the spectrum to about as light as it comes, which is a dexterity game called Bonk. So uh, some of you may have heard of a game that came out last year uh, called Clask, K-L-A-S-K. Uh, this is actually from the same publisher, um, Competo. I believe is the name. And they actually reached out to me on Twitter and uh, I have Clask and they asked me if I would like a copy of their new game, Bonk. And I said, heck yeah, I would. So they kindly sent me over a copy of it. So I wanted to give them a shout out and say thank you. There were no, like, they didn't ask me to do anything in return for that. So, uh, but I wanted to talk about the game because it's a lot of fun. This game would be perfect for families, for kids, for literally anyone. It is... If you remember the 90s game Crossfire, like it's I kind of game. it's kind of like that in a way, but like a little more elegant. It's less frantic. Like, well, no, it's kind of well, regardless, let me explain how it works. So, you're going to want to look at pictures of this board online because it's going to be hard to describe, but it's a big wooden board that's a little bit sloped. Like it's kind of it raises up a little bit in the middle and then slopes down on both ends. And in each of the four corners is a plastic slide and there's a wooden ball that starts in the middle of the board and uh four players will control the two the slides on each corner. You roll steel balls that are smaller than the wooden ball down your slide and try and get them to hit the wooden ball and knock it into the goal on the other side of the board. So it's two on two. You could technically play this with just two players, having both people control both slides, but that's really difficult. I recommend it with four only. But yeah, you're literally just sliding these steel balls down a ramp, trying to get them to hit the wooden ball into... The other goal. But the thing is, when the steel balls fly into the other person's side, you can't like reach across the board and grab them. You only get to use the steel balls that come over to your side of the board. And if you don't have any balls, then the team, the opponent's team has to give you one, but that's it. So then you have to wait for more to come over. And that's literally it. I think first to score, I'm not even sure how many points, maybe five points wins the game. It's as simple as it gets. I really, really enjoy it. It's so much fun. It's a great little light filler game. It looks cool sitting on a table. So like if you're playing it, people will definitely be like, hey, what is that? Um, And I believe that in the US, um, it is, I don't know if it already is, but I think uh, you'll be able to get it at Target, just like you were able to get Clask. So it's pretty easy to get a hold of. If I go to Target's website, it is listed at $60. uh, But I know that they often do discounts on board games pretty frequently, both in stores and online. So I would say watch for one of those sales to pop up. And I bet you this one would probably fall within that. So I I did get this copy for free. I don't think I probably would have paid full MSRP for it only because even though it is very well produced and a lot of fun, I don't think that six, I mean, $60 is worth what you're getting component wise. But for me personally, gameplay wise, I don't think it's something that I would have needed to have in my collection for $60. But so I wanted to be full disclosure there that I did get my copy for free. But yeah, if you have like kids or casual gamers that like to play games, like this is a great addition to a collection. And it really, it's a nice uh, talking piece. Is that the right term? Talking piece? Yeah. So if you're comparing it to like a uh, coffee table book, I feel like a talking piece is, is appropriate. Yeah, like that's what it seems like to me. It's something that you're going to leave sitting out. And then when you've got a couple of minutes, you're going to 
gonna knock some balls around, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's cool. going to be a conversation starter is probably mm-hmm, a better mm-hmm. term for it. Um, and it is a lot of fun. I highly recommend you check out Bonk by Competto. For this week's thematic segment, we wanted to take a look at art in board games. So we figured we could talk about some of our favorite board game art, why art is important in board games, and some other cool things about it. Uh, It is important to note that we are going to be mentioning a lot of names during this segment, and we will likely uh, mess up the pronunciations of some of them because a lot of these artists are do not have American names as they are from other countries. And we apologize in advance. We're going to try and pronounce them as best we can, but we will probably get some of them wrong. And it is also a fun fact. There are over 16,000 listings on BoardGameGeek under the category of artists. So that is pretty awesome. And BoardGameGeek, while I would imagine is pretty inclusive of just about everybody, there are a lot of uncredited artists for a lot of games. So there's definitely more than that that have made art for games. So it's clearly something that's very important in gaming to some degree. What are your guys' thoughts on the importance of art in a board game? Well, for me, (laughs) art is not needed to make a good board game, but it's always a nice addition to have it. So like one of my favorite games is Dungeon Pets. And there are a lot of cool details in the art there. So when you're playing, like the game is good and you're playing the game and then you notice all these details in the art that's like make it really cool. For example, there's different cards that the pets use that like one is for hunger, one's for like they're, they're angry. And on the backs of the cards, they have this generic pet art. And then on the one for hungry, he's like eating something. And the one for angry, he looks angry. (laughs) So I thought that was really cool because I didn't notice that until my second or third play (laughs) because it's just such a subtle detail. And so that Dungeon Pets artist, uh, David Koshard, is my favorite artist because of that. But it's not needed in a game because like I play a lot of 18xx games too and those don't have good art. But it's a nice addition to games, I think. But the question is, is would Dungeon Pets be your favorite game if it didn't have the art? Well, it's not my favorite game. It's one of my favorite games. Well, <laughs> one of your favorite games if it didn't have the art. Like, would you still... If it had no still... art. Well, another thing is, the, like, the theme. The art goes with the theme. So it, it needs some art to have that theme, I think. Because if it had no art at all, it would you wouldn't be, like, buying pets. Right. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be buying stick figures. <laughs> I guess even if it was stick figures, it would be okay. <laughs> to be fair, every game has a little bit of art yeah, or at least graphic true. design because otherwise there's literally nothing on that board yeah. or piece of paper or whatever. And it is important to note that art or um, illustration and graphic design are two different yes. forms of artwork, mm-hmm. both of which are Uh, often important in gaming Mm -hmm. because while some artists do both illustration and graphic design, not all artists do both. So Ambie, kind of similar to what you were saying with Dungeon Pets, I, I tend to appreciate the little details in games that technically don't add to the gameplay itself or the mechanics, but just kind of are fun little, fun little surprises. Mm -hmm. Like uh, in King Domino, 
the tiles could literally be single colors for some of the land types. Like water could just be solid blue. But instead mm-hmm. of that, like if you look at one of the water tiles that's too water, there's like a Loch Ness monster like <laughs> swimming underneath the water. And it doesn't add anything mechanically to the game. But every time that tile comes up, I smile because it's it's nice. And when you build your final kingdom, having all those little details in there kind of almost creates like a little imaginary world in front of you and the artist for king domino is cyril bouquet um and i looked to see what other games he's done because i really like the art in king domino and he's done um a couple pages worth of uh games listed on board game geek but not really many that i have run into there have definitely been a few games that i've purchased just because of the art (laughs) The most recent one I can think of would be Shiba Inu House. I saw this game and immediately had to have it because it's the cutest thing I've seen in a really long time. And in this one, the artist and the designer are the same, and it was Aza Chen. I'm terrible at keeping up with designers, artists, anything, because I'm a horrible board game player. But... um, (laughs) I really like this game, and the art is honestly one of the reasons why I like it so much. So my favorite board game artist is Marie Cardois, and I think she's probably best known for her art in uh, Dixit and all of its expansions, which is just uh, lovely. Uh, She also did art for one of my favorite games, Steam Park, and its expansion, and she's done some other games as well. she, did she do hop? Uh, did hop. Yes, yeah. she did hop, uh, which is also beautiful. Um, and she did uh, And Then We Held Hands, which I haven't played yet, but I've been wanting to. Um, her art kind of has a an ethereal, like magical fantasy quality that is just lovely. And I like it a lot. Um, and going back to illustration versus graphic design, it seems like euro games and like heavier euros tend to have less illustration or less room for illustration because there's no characters really there's not like cards with story art that you can do except other than the cover art really so i think graphic design is also a lot more important in in those heavier games too because there's a lot of things going on and it wants to you want to be able to see what's going on clearly and it feels like as hybrid games as they mm-hmm. are coming to be known have become more popularized. I think that the the blending of those two worlds has allowed for more interesting art in Euro style or games or games mm-hmm. with Euro mechanics. And I think a good example of that would be Above and Below and Near and Far, which are both designed and the art is created by the same guy, Ryan Lawcat. He designed the games and did all of the art for them. He's an incredibly talented person. It kind of blows my mind that he does all of that stuff on his own. And uh, it's all beautiful. But those games are definitely Euro-style games, but they're also very thematic, which I think y'all know at this point, a lot of us like games that are both <laughs> Euro and thematic. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, his stuff is great. And then there's Scythe, which mm-hmm. was built based on the art, right? Yep. Yeah. Like, I think Jamie yeah. Stegmeier, the designer, saw the artist, Jakub Rosalski. He saw his art and then made the game and the whole lore based on that, I think. So. And now there's a video game real-time strategy coming out yeah. based off that world. Oh, really? I did not know that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. 
I mean, so for me personally, it's interesting because what I was inclined to say just off the top of my head is that the art can help bring me into the world of a game more like thematically. And I think that that's not an untrue statement, but when I really like start thinking about it more, the games that I love that I feel are the most thematic don't always have great art. So I think art can help immerse you in the theme of a game, but the mechanics often need to be there and strong as well to help Mm -hmm. bring a theme out. And I think a great example of that is something that I've discussed before, the Legendary Encounters Firefly (laughs) game, which many people know, and I have mentioned that the art on that game is not great. Mm -hmm. And I, whatever, and like, it's not, it's not even just that it's not great. It's not consistent. Like, the art for a single character throughout the game will look wildly different uh, between one card, the next, the box, the rule book. And so you would think that that would be off-putting, but I actually, I finished the campaign of that game not too long ago. And I must say for a fan of Firefly, the TV show, that game was awesome. And while the art was not great, it did not take away from the experience in any way, shape, or form for me. Now, if you're Mm -hmm. someone who's never seen the show and you attempted to play that game, I imagine you might have a different opinion because you don't... I have those pictures in my head. I know what those characters look like. I know what they sound like. I don't need the art on the cards to help build a world for me. So it didn't bother me. I just basically ignored the art on the cards while I was playing and just let the text and the story come through. But yeah, if you didn't have anything else as a frame of reference, you might be like, ugh, this is kind of (laughs) weird. I had mentioned that game before when I was early in the campaign and I did finish it and I did really, really love it. So um, it has problems. It's not perfect, but I would recommend it for fans, hardcore fans of Firefly. It is probably one of the most thematic Firefly-like experiences that you're ever to get in a box. Yeah, for me, thematic immersion is also more on the mechanics than the art. So one game that I really like is Tragedy Looper, and I think the mechanics of that work really well with the time travel theme. The art's fine, but I think the graphic design is pretty bad. It's really dark and really hard to distinguish things, the different tokens. So that makes the gameplay more difficult because you have to like look closely to see what's going on, and the text is small and stuff like that. So that's not really art-related, but more the design as a whole, I think. Well, and I mean, yeah, no, that's that's a good point that the graphic design of a card or a board or mm-hmm. a piece of anything in a game can potentially ruin the experience if it is yeah. not well thought out. Yeah. So for me, I think that can actually ruin a game more than art because... Well, yeah, it, if it, the cards are hard to yeah, read it, or if something's hard to see, then... <laughs> yeah, if the weight, uh, the appropriate weight isn't given to the pieces mm-hmm. of information on a card, like if you have to struggle to look for information then that makes the game more difficult to play. Yeah. And on that note, iconography. (laughs) Some games have great iconography. Other games, I have to reference the rule book every single time I see something because I have no idea what it's trying to say to me. Mm -hmm. I would imagine, and again, this is speculation on my part, but as more games come out every year, which is still a trend that is occurring, I think that publishers are probably learning that if they want their games to get noticed on a shelf at a store or even online, there has to be something striking about them. I mean, back in the day, 
you know, board games in the 80s were often like a really cheesy photograph of people (laughs) playing the game. Like that was what was on the cover or on the back of the box. And it didn't look like that you were really trying to sell the game with the artwork on the box, at least. And now I think people are kind of make trying to make the box look enticing you know mm-hmm. make it make it ooh what what is this like even something as simple as takaido where the side of the box is almost plain white with just the words but it's so clean and elegant looking you kind of you were you're like what is this i'd like to know more about that mm-hmm. another good example of that is abyss where the box is just the giant like monster face like yeah. that really drew me to that game yeah i know people were talking about that box cover before the game even released people didn't even know what the game was about but they mm-hmm. were like this looks yeah. interesting and really if you think about it a picture of a face in theory that's so interesting sh- right really not but because it was different i think that's what is important to note is like you want to differentiate your whatever you were putting out there from what's going to be sitting nearby mm-hmm. and make it stand out in some way and that could be with well, something simple or something elegant or something complex it could be a bunch of different things i think the big thing with that is it didn't even have the name of the game on the top of the box it was just on the side like it's literally just the face there's no words or anything mm-hmm. on the top of that box yeah, that definitely makes you go, wait, what is that? <laughs> and now if you picked it up, now you're one step closer to taking it to the cash register. So yeah, I think if I if I had to summarize our thoughts, it feels like art is not necessary to make a good game, but art is often a very wonderful part of many games, both thematically and aesthetically. Mm-hmm. And I, for one, am very, very happy that more board game publishers seem to be paying more attention to the art and graphic design that goes into their games, because I think that it makes the experiences better overall, at least for me. What would you guys say? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I think I'm kind of, I don't know, like, since I'm a writer by trade, which is a form of art, but just different, like, I'm definitely a fan of people who create art getting paid to do art. Because, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time, writers and artists have been kind of underutilized or neglected or not appreciated for what they're doing. Because people don't, people who don't make art tend to not realize the inherent value of it. And, you know, it's just like, oh, well, what you can, why can't you just make me a drawing of a thing? Why can't you just, it only, it'll only take you 15 <laughs> minutes to do this thing. And it's like, well, yes, but the training and the schooling and the experience that has gotten them to the point where they can do that is worth something. I was asked once how much it would cost to have me make a blanket for someone <laughs> since I crochet. And I told them dollars. my price. And they were not pleased. And I'm like, well, I have to get the materials. I have to spend this amount of time on it. You want it to be this big? Like, I'm sorry. This is the cost. Yeah. I, My time is valuable. It is. It's still definitely a problem in our society that art is undervalued a lot by many people who don't understand mm-hmm. how art is really created. And it seems like board games and gaming in general are getting better about that, but we're still not there yet. So... Um, make sure that if you make support, a support artists, both not just ne- with, necessarily with your dollars, but like talk about the artists that you love and support them. Oh my gosh, I didn't even mention one of my other favorites. Uh, Beth Sobel is 
a board game artist who I absolutely love. So Beth Sobel has illustrated a bunch of games that... Oh, Beth Sobel was the artist on World's Fair 1893, which we just talked hey, about I in the last episode. That. Um, she also, I should pay attention to things. <laughs> yeah, she did um, Herbaceous, which is a game that I love. She did Lanterns, The Harvest Festival, Viticulture. Oh, I love that game, too. Oh, I love that game, too. Between dang. Two Cities. Um, oh, I like that. Ah, dang it. Stop it. <laughs> well, so maybe 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 Beth Sobel is Cassidy's favorite and she didn't even realize. <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> For this week's etymology segment, I'm keeping things simple and looking at the history of the word art. The noun form of the word art, meaning skill as a result of learning or practice, originates in the early 13th century. It can be traced back through an old French word of the same spelling, as well as from the Latin word artum, which meant work of art, practical skill, a business, or craft. It can be traced back further to the Proto-Indo-European arti. It has some etymological similarities to the Latin word arma, which means weapons. So that's kind of interesting, art as a weapon. I'm now picturing an epic battle, not fought with swords or arrows, but paintbrushes and oil pastels. So the meaning of art, a skill in the creative arts, was first recorded in the 1610s. And then in the 1660s, it was used in reference to art forms, such as painting, sculpture, and other things that more specifically. I found a quote about art that I really liked from the Irish poet W.B. Yeats. Supreme art is a traditional statement of certain heroic and religious truths passed on from age to age, modified by individual genius, but never abandoned. The revolt of individualism came because the tradition had become degraded, or rather because a spurious copy had been accepted in its stead. So clearly... Uh, art has been important for a very, very long time, and I imagine it will be even more important in the years to come. And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, boardgameblitz.com, to get links to all our social media pages, including our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Board Game Geek Guild. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to show us a little love, you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just head to patreon.com slash boardgameblitz. Our patrons get a lot of benefits, including access to our private Slack channel where you can chat with us directly anytime. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Board Game Blitz is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Check out the other shows in the network by visiting dicetowernetwork.com. Until next time, can you paint with all three colors of the Blitz? Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.